last two talks that uh, I did, and I think they were a while ago, uh, were on the Eightfold Path. And we were exploring it on the three divisions of the Eightfold Path. And uh, we did two of them, which in the West seems to be the most popular two, <clears throat> which is uh, meditation and um, wisdom, prajna and samadhi. The middle fold is sila, and sila is uh, uh, what's translated usually as uh, morality or ethics. The, uh, in Wan Buddhism, we call this threefold division or the threefold practice. Uh, and from the scriptures, it's the way that it's referred to, if you're, if you're reading our scriptures, uh, is called cultivating the spirit, inquiry into human affairs and universal principles, and choice and action. Uh, the equivalent trainings are in the precepts are sila, uh, absorption, samadhi, and wisdom, which is prajna. Uh, in the prior talks, I was looking at the ways that uh, samadhi and prajna, or wisdom and meditation, uh, each by themselves can lead to a full awakening. Uh, I did those first because they were easier. It's kind of hard to see how morality, or what's, what's translated as morality, uh, can be an individual path to awakening also. Uh, if you missed the first two talks, and I'm going to assume that uh, most of us have, because we always have different people, uh, let me just quickly review uh, the, the first uh, and, and the last fold of it. The first one is prajna wisdom, and wisdom, uh, we know from a definition, is, uh, is knowledge from experience. It's broken down into two paths, and this is the old eightfold path, so the first and second of the eightfold path, which is uh, the first one is known as right view, and the second one is right intention. Uh, let me give you a, a, an analogy just to kind of make it easier to remember and see if this works for you. Uh, right view, imagine that you're living up in the mountains someplace, you bought a ranch or a farm, a cabin, and you have a neighbor and he's got an SUV, and and it snows a lot, and you notice he can get up and down the mountain, and he talks to you about how great it is. You can carry the hay, and you, know, you don't have to worry about the mud. And uh, so it becomes your view that a SUV or a four-wheel drive vehicle would be the proper thing to have for you. And that's the developing of right view. Now, once you have the right view, you can then go to town and go to a couple dealerships and go shopping for a vehicle. Now, when you go shopping, and the analogy is living in the world, if you have this view, uh, when you get to the dealership, you're not going to look at sports cars or other types of vehicles. Uh, the view that you have of how things should be is going to lead you, which is the next step, which is right intention, uh, to progress towards the vehicle that's appropriate for you, or to act in a way according to the view, which is that you should have an SUV. So those are the first two. The last of the, the three folds is uh, samadhi. And samadhi is, is usually translated as right concentration or sometimes right meditation. But what we're referring to here is uh, regulation. I think that's the best way to look at samadhi. And if we were going to uh, talk about regulating something, um, 
what's something that regulates uh, a governor on an engine or, or more simple, uh, a, a thermostat in a house. Uh, to regulate the temperature, it has to do two things. It has to observe it, and then it has to perform an action uh, to control it. So a thermostat observes the temperature when it gets out of a certain range, it turns a switch to control it, to raise it or lower it. And this practice of samadhi uh, or meditation could be looked as a method of learning how to regulate, to observe and control the mind. Uh, going back to the analogy of the SUV, you could say uh, that uh, the regulation is the ability to learn how to drive the car. So the mind is kind of like the car and we're learning how to drive it. Uh, now that breaks down into uh, also three steps or three parts of the path. And that becomes right mindfulness, which is that vigilant observation or awareness. And that's kind of like if you're driving, that's to notice the cars around you. Uh, if a ball rolls into a, to the street, you're careful that a child might run out after it. Uh, it's adjusting the mirrors. So right mindfulness is that ability to see what's going on. Uh, more technically, it's to increase the totality of what we can potentially be conscious of. That's what our sub-minds or our subconscious is able to project into our conscious awareness. We're increasing that ability. And the classical definition, uh, it's it, it, the ability to develop a mind with the capability to observe and recognize introspective awareness, that is, one state of mind, whether it's positive or negative, whether the mind is going through beneficial or harmful states, and to see clearly into the nature of reality. And we talk about the three marks of existence, and that's impermanence, the dependent nature or dependent origination of everything, and the emptiness of self, and the nature of suffering or dukkha. Next, we have right concentration, and that's more uh, attention. That's in that great awareness of we, that we have of where we place our mind. And it, it, you can be, look at it as where we focus our attention or how we discriminate in that field of awareness. And if we look at, again at the analogy of the car, if it's Monday and you've ever driven up Third Avenue at rush hour, there's cars all over the place. Uh, so you, you have to be able to focus not on what's going around, but the car to the right, to the left, uh, what's specifically happening at that particular moment. So it's the ability to increase uh, how we pay attention in that totality of awareness. The classical definition would be a meditative state of mind where the meditator is able to consciously direct attention. That's the point of focus in terms of clarity, scope, and duration in order to develop what we call vispassana or insight. Uh, there's a quote I'd like to, to give you from Sotasan, who's the founder of Wan Buddhism. And he describes this particular process. He says, quote, if the mind is wholesome, everything wholesome arises along with it. If the mind is unwholesome, everything unwholesome arises along with it. Thus, the mind becomes the basis for everything wholesome and unwholesome. So today we're going to look at sila. And we're going to look at it from two points of view. Uh, one, its apparent benefits and how it functions apparently. 
And then we're going to look at something a little different, which is what we tried to do in the other ones as we went through it. And both of those talks, I think, are still on the web, uh, on the website, so you could, if you want to reference them, uh, is how there are apparent benefits of, of SELA uh, and transcend, transcendental benefits of SELA, which is how does it work as a path to awakening? Two different sides to it. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote from Shanti Deva, who was a 8th century Buddhist master. And I'm going to come back to it later on. So I'm going to read it a little slowly, and then I have some questions for you about it. All the happiness there is in the world arises from wishing others to be happy. All the suffering there is in the world arises from wishing oneself to be happy. All the happiness in the world arises from wishing others to be happy. All of the suffering there is in this world arises from wishing oneself to be happy. So I'd like to just you to consider that for a moment. And I offered this uh, as a point of discussion to two groups in the last week. One, a group of young people here, all in their 20s. And then yesterday to a, a group, a philosophy group that uh, is all in 65 or older, and I ask them the same question. What do you think each group said? What do you think is the answer to that? Does that make sense, or, or is it craziness? Well, strangely or interestingly enough, the younger group that was here uh, said, oh, that's silly, that's, that's crazy, anybody that that would think that way is obviously deluded. It's not a true statement, and uh, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be taken in by that. And uh, I, I said, why? And they said, well, uh, my personal happiness is just as important as anybody else's, and if I don't make myself happy, who's going to take care of me, and who's going to make me happy? And life is about being happy. So I definitely have to, to see about that. And, and, uh, if I, if I don't look after my own happiness, people are going to take advantage of me. I'm going to be like a doormat. I'll just be doing things for people all the time, and nobody will, you know, nobody will care about me. And um, that was their impression. I said, oh, this is maybe not going to go over so well. And then I asked the older group, and they maybe or maybe not had a different impression. We'll see. So before we decide, before you decide, Let's just review, or, or review. Let's, let's talk about what is sila. Uh, it's usually translated as morality or ethics. And I think both are a poor translation. And this is why I believe that. Morality, the way it's used, is usually comes from some divine origin, some greater power. Uh, usually some kind of deity or god. Sometimes it can also be a, a social morality or an institutional morality by a government that can be opposed. But usually it's from some, some type of a, a deity. And just about always, or always, there is some kind of reward for following it and a punishment for not, whether it's heaven and hell or some other consequence for behaving and not behaving. So you're required to, to subscribe to it. And that would be morality. And that's not what Sila is. The other way it's translated as ethics. And it's not ethics. 
ethics applies to usually to a profession uh, or a particular group. Uh, it's, it's a way that a profession or an organization can function. You can be organizational ethics, you can have professional ethics, uh, the medical profession has ethics, the uh, legal profession has ethics, and it's a code of conduct that the people subscribe to to make it function, to make that organization function. So, for example, um, if you talk about legal ethics, uh, a lawyer uh, may have a ethical responsibility to defend somebody that he knows is, 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 a, is, a, is a terrible person, uh, that's done things that he finds reprehensible. Uh, to get someone that's a murderer who may even go out and murder again, knowing this, uh, to get them off on perhaps some small technicality. They have an ethical responsibility. It's not a moral responsibility. It's an ethical responsibility. And this goes through the medical profession of when to end life for somebody, and these are rules to make things function. So this is not what we're pointing at as a, as a specific set of rules. What we're talking about is when we say, I, I would say the word is virtuous. So I say it's right virtue. And when we talk about virtue, the definition of virtue would be something that offers an, a benefit, an advantage, or a goodness. So you could say it's a virtuous plan because it's inexpensive and cheap. So the emphasis is on what comes out of it, how it's going to function in, in the world. In Buddhism, it's specifically defined as not to cause harm to any living being and to benefit others. So what is it to be a virtuous person? To become virtuous is to have a behavioral trait that is characteristic of you as a person. So when we talk about practicing virtue, we talk about changing the, changing the traits that make us up. Practicing virtue is not just about following rules, but changing the personality traits of who we are at the deepest level. Another word that comes to describing this, I would say is integrity when we're talking about a person. So you can say right integrity. And integrity comes from the Latin meaning to be integral is to be whole. One is consistent, honest, and intentional. Consistency is about being the same regardless of the situation and being consistent in actions, values, and methods. Uh, intentionality reflects that what we say and how we behave and how we make decisions is reflective of our core values and beliefs. And honesty of one's actions requires, again, intentionality and thought. So it's a bit, a bit different. Uh, let me go over the classical definitions of how you'll find them in the Eightfold Path. Uh, right speech, uh, which is to abstain from telling lies, using words to hurt other people. When one restrains from this, one naturally has to speak the truth to use words that are friendly, benevolent, pleasant, gentle, meaningful, and useful. Then there's right action, which is usually looked at as um, not to kill, not to destroy life, from not to steal, that's taking what is not given, uh, not to engage in harmful sexual activity, that sexual activity that causes harm to another, uh, or to cloud the mind with intoxicating substances. 
If one's not doing that, one should act with kindness to help others to lead a peaceful and fulfilling life. And then the third one is right livelihood, and that's simply to live in a way that expresses right view and uh, making a living and going through life in a way that doesn't harm others. So why practice virtue? What are the benefits? Well, first the apparent benefits or the obvious benefits, which I think is probably clear to all of us. Uh, if you act in that way, people will respect you, they'll trust you, you'll end up having more friends, uh, business propositions will come your way, uh, greater job opportunity, personally you'll have more self-esteem, more confidence, less to have remorse about, less stress, less drama, less worry, less agitation, a calmer mind, and all these things of course are ideal for meditation. So obviously there's a tremendous amount of apparent benefits. So if, if all these benefits are so apparent, why aren't we doing it? Why isn't the world doing this? Which brings back to the question, you know, how does it lead to awakening? Uh, I was at a class and uh, in a different Buddhist tradition, and they were talking about the Eightfold Path, and particularly with emphasis on prajna, perfection of wisdom. And one of the students uh, asked a question to the teacher and says, listen, my brother is not a Buddhist, he's not a Christian, but he's devoted his life to helping other people, and he believes that his way to, to what she said was God was to do just keep doing good things, and he's wonderful, and he volunteers, and he does all these great things. Is he going to be enlightened? Is, is, that, a, is, that, is that a valid path? And the answer at that time was, was no. So I went up to her after class, and I said, don't pay attention to that answer. It can be absolutely a valid path, and congratulate your brother and encourage him, and he has just as much chance to become as a Buddha, as any of us, simply by following that path to virtue. So how is that possible? I mean, we we're talking about emptiness and Irwan Sang, and just by being good, is it possible? In what way does it function? I mean, not the apparent benefits, but what are the underlying benefits that the Buddha found that was different about Buddhism than it was about any other religion? The difference between this and uh, Judeo-Christian religions or other, other religions in the world because we don't rely on a particular deity. So how does it lead to awakening? I've asked Buddhist groups, and some people believe that you acquire merit. And you get this merit, and it adds up to your karma, and you get enough merit, and you will be reborn in a better life, in a heaven, or what have you. Uh, but then I ask, who's keeping score? And is this really, you know, the way to look at it? I mean, is it, is it like you get this merit and it's kind of like a um, spiritual frequent flyer miles and, you know, you get so many miles and you could trade them in for, you know, uh, the Tisha heaven or whatever? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. And then some people believe that it's kind of a cosmic thing. You know, everything is in a circle. And uh, they believe that if you give away your money, it'll come back to you tenfold. No? Okay. Uh, uh, it's interesting, but my experience is that you can't really count on that to consistently 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't observe true. People can give away all their money and end up simply broke. And uh, that may not be the thing to, the way to do it. So how does it become a vehicle for liberation? And I'll read it again. All the happiness there is in the world arises from wishing others to be happy. All of the suffering there is in this world arises from wishing oneself to be happy. The older group said, thinking back on their lives and asking themselves, what was it that I was happiest that I remember? What was consistent about it? Because they had this long period to draw from. And they came to the same conclusion that it was when they did things for other people that they felt the most happy. And not <laughs> happy, but I'm talking about happiness that's a profound sense of well-being that's consistent and persistent. A profound sense of well-being that persists. And by doing things for other people and giving and wishing others to be happy, they found the most joy. Whether it was helping a child take its first step, a grandchild taking his first step, uh, whether it was helping someone out of a jam, whether it was being available. These were the times in their life that they felt the greatest sense of happiness and fulfillment. And one of them even talked about, uh, he, he walks down his street looking for people that are lost, that are tourists, so he can give them directions because he likes the feeling so much. And someone else talked about noticing people that are trying to take packages upstairs and how they, they jump to help them. And these are older people because they get a sense of satisfaction and, and joy from that. So. If that's so, why is it that someone wouldn't practice virtue? Why is it the world is such an incredibly unvirtuous place? Why? Yeah. So if I hear you right, okay, it's that you feel that we're encouraged to do this by society and so on. There's perhaps another answer. One reason that you could say that people don't act in virtuous ways, or one reason that people do whatever they do, is that we all want to be happy and not to suffer. And this goes to the, back to the question of happiness that arises from doing good for others and happiness that arises from doing good to itself. And it's a subtle point. When we do things that are non-virtuous, anyone that does it, because we looked at all the benefits, they do it for a reason. They do something that's stealing, lying, hurting, killing, because they think they need to do so to prevent themselves from being harmed in some way, experiencing something they don't want to experience, or to get something that they feel they need to be happy. Why to steal, why to lie, why to make up an excuse, why to act in that way. And that's universal. So the actions of unvirtuous is to do something to protect or what they feel, what they believe, because I'm, I'm saying to you that this is a mistaken perception, but what they perceive mistakenly to be, to be a benefit to themselves in one way or another. And that's the only reason that people really do unvirtuous things. The only reason is that they feel that they need to avoid or to get something for themselves. So, this creates an interesting cycle. Every time you do something of this nature, 
You make yourself more non-virtuous and create a stronger sense of entitlement and a more solidified sense of self. Each time the temptation arises to act out of self-interest and you set it aside, you're creating virtue. This is what we talk about merit, okay? This is what it really is. You're altering yourself and your personality characteristics. The more you do it, the easier it becomes to do until you become a virtuous person. This leads to a looser and looser held sense of self and possibly in some people a powerful letting enough go of the conception of this false or independent self to lead directly to awakening. So how does this then make virtue a vehicle for liberation? What is liberation? What are we being liberated from? What's awakening? What are we awakening to? And basically, it's to overcome the craving and that belief in a permanent self. That's the cause of dukkha. All the chants that we're doing, if you read them and you study them, that's what they're all pointing to. This non-existence of this substantial reified self that we believe that we are separate and alone from everybody else, rather than interconnected, independent, and a part of everything else. Liberation is from the delusion that lead to craving that is the cause of our suffering. Without the stress of suffering, we awaken to our Buddha nature, to that innate underlying us that naturally manifests. It's not that we attain or get anything, but we just discover what's there all along. It's like the analogy of the sun is always shining, but sometimes the clouds come over and you don't see it. It doesn't mean it's, it's still shining. It's when those clouds disappear that that nature is there. The sun isn't gone, it's just that we, it's obscured. As Buddhists, we aspire to live a life where one's actions are a reflection or a manifestation of wisdom, which is prajna, and mindfulness, which is samadhi, that result in compassion or manifest as sila. Sila is both the cause of the other two and the effect of the other two divisions. So sila, that calm mind, allows the other two to happen, and the other two create sila. If you only practice meditation, your chances of awakening are limited, and your awakening may be limited. The same applies for just having wisdom. If you understand that you're not separate, if you understand all of these interconnections, if you understand impermanence, but you don't act and manifest it, you'll never actually manifest to become that realization. So the Eightfold Path is laid out as these three practices, each of which can be viewed as a path in itself. But when practiced together, they interact synergistically, that's they add to each other, and they function as a catalyst for awakening. The way I like to look at this Eightfold Path is not as a linear path going from here to there, 
but as a circle or a spiral path that each time you travel around it, each part strengthens and deepens the next part, both stabilizing an infinite ongoing progression of what in a circle is infinite awakening. So I wish each one of you from the depths of my heart as you travel this path a speedy, joyous, and most fruitful journey. Thank you.